and everybody, whether we're willing to admit it or not, we want a happily ever after ending. Can I just say that um, after Cinderella and uh, Snow White for many, many years, you know, those were the, the happily ever ending uh, stories, fairy tales, until uh, I believe, wasn't it uh, Disney that put this one out, Beauty and the Beast? That was, that was Disney, right? And what an, what an awesome storyline that it had. Now, I can't agree with maybe everything, but here is this guy, and he thinks he's all that, but his heart is wrong, and he, I guess he offends a witch, and she puts a curse on him. So bottom line, here this guy is. He is turned into a beast, and the truth is that turning into a beast made him more of a beast. There's no happily ever after ending for this guy until he meets a beautiful young lady by the name of Belle. You remember the story well. And Belle comes on the scene and you know, he ends up capturing her, so to speak, in his wonderful, huge, beautiful castle. And it's alive with magic. And she begins to see his heart softening. So here's this beast, and his heart is so hardened and embittered, and now he begins to feel this love, and he feels like, wow, there's something to live for, and the beast begins to change. Now, I'm not going to share the whole story with you. You remember it. And the beast begins to change, but at the very end, spoiler alert, if you've not seen the movie before, he is on the verge of death, and she is over his body, and she is weeping, and she says, I love you. And all of a sudden, the beast twirls with his cape, twirls around him with a whirlwind of magic up into the air, and, and beams of light shine from his fingertips and his toes. And suddenly, when he comes down, he's no longer a beast. He's a handsome prince. At least I guess he is, ladies, right? A handsome prince. And they end up getting married and having little beasts. No, they don't either. <laughs> they, having little ones running around the house. They live, how church? Happily ever after. The stuff of fairy tales. And you know, you love those stories with the happily ever after ending. But there is always one problem, if not many, but at least one problem. And the world buys into this happily ever after ending. And that's kind of like a theme in movies. There's a problem. There's a hero. He comes to rescue. And there's romance. Or there is a, a, a deliverance. And the hero is exalted. And everybody lives happily ever after. But the truth is that that is the stuff of fairy tales. Because there is always an element. Always an element that is missing. And that is Jesus Christ. You see, the world has believed that it can solve its own problems. You see the debates, the political debates going on. And they think that they can rescue the world. Or, or at least make it better. But the truth is, apart from Jesus Christ, this world is still lost in sin. And we will never live happily ever after. Uh, in, even after this life, but even in this life, there's no utopia. You know, communists, communism's utopia is a complete made-up 
story from men's imaginations because we cannot rescue ourselves. Here's my point. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no antidote for what ails this world. There is no happily ever after. Now, I'm going to come back to this theme, but follow me with me. Follow me if you would. We're in a Israel and the Church series. I'm going to tie this in right now. Many believe that as they, you know, read through the Old Testament and as now, as they read through the New Testament, and now today, since 1948, we have a happily ever after ending. And that is that Israel has finally come to its homeland and they shall live happily ever after. Uh, there's a problem, of course. I think you can look in the Middle East and see that. In a few minutes, we're going to show a video to that effect. It's only five minutes, but I want to build up to that. And then I've got, I, I want us to take a theme that we're going to see in the Old Testament scriptures. And it is a powerful theme concerning this happily ever after story. But we, we, we look at Israel as becoming a nation. And we see in 1948, they become, a, they become their own state, their own nation. And we say that this is that spoken of in the scriptures. And my question is, is that really the case? Because there is no such thing as a happily ever after ending apart from Jesus. Now, I did talk, and I believe it was last year, I'm trying to remember now, about a second time in which God reclaims, and we saw that the first reclaiming was the remnant. It was the Jews coming to Christ. The, the church, the early church was birthed. Gentiles, of course, added to the kingdom through the gospel. And there will be another time spoken of, even in Romans 11, concerning all Israel shall be saved. There's going to be, an, there's going to be a revival among the Jews. Now, we know this scripture teaches that we see it both in Old Testament and New. But there are many who would look at these passages that we've been looking at and they would, they would take them very literally and they would say, see, this is Israel becoming a nation. It is just so clear. It, we're going to look at some passages concerning the land. Now, I, I don't want you to jump to a conclusion that I'm not jumping to, all right? So... What they will do is they will look back, are you in Genesis 15? And they will say, this covenant of land is an everlasting covenant. I want us to look at this for a moment because we need to be able to, as we read through the Old Testament, and there are many, many passages that refer to this restoration of the fortunes of Israel. And the question is, well, what does this mean? What does Israel coming back to their land mean? In Genesis chapter 15, there is a covenant, an everlasting covenant that God makes with Abraham. Now, I'm going to kind of jump right in the middle of this. And in it, <coughs> excuse me, in it he says in verse 18, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt, river of Egypt, to the great river, the Euphrates. From the river of Egypt, which may be that wadi of Egypt, they call it in, in the Sinai Peninsula, not necessarily the Nile, but from the wadi of Egypt, you can look on a map in your, the back of your Bible, all the way to the Euphrates. And this is what God is now giving to Abraham. Turn the page, Genesis 17. God renews this covenant 
And <coughs> excuse me. God renews this covenant in verse 8, and he's, he, he refers to it in verse 7 as an everlasting covenant. And then he says in verse 8, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I, give, I will give you as an everlasting possession. What kind of a possession was that, church, did he say? Yeah. Everlasting, thank you. An everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And so there are people who would say, it is so clear here, this is an everlasting covenant. And in this everlasting covenant, he gives them the land as an everlasting possession. Now, I want us to be cautious here, because if we are going to take this everlasting covenant with no change, we must understand that this Israel becoming a nation in 1948... What God is really saying, if this is that everlasting covenant, is that it will extend to the Euphrates River. Which means, as Christian Zionists, we should help Israel fight for that land that extends all the way to the Euphrates River. That would extend well into Syria and be a, a large chunk of the nation of Syria. I don't know of any Christian Zionists who believe that, and yet as they look at this passage, they are determined that this passage refers to that land, and they deserve it, and that is what it means to, be, to have an everlasting possession. Well, my concern then is, then the promise should go, the, the, the land should go all the way to the river, the Euphrates River. The second is that, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, but contained in this everlasting covenant, could we, by the way, bring these house lights up just a little bit more, is it just me? Uh, it, it could be me, so if it is, I'm sorry. But it, maybe it is just me, oh well. But there we go. It wasn't, thank you, Lord, I'm not going blind yet. But in this everlasting covenant, he shares with us an element of that in verse 13. Uh, halfway through, it says, My covenant in your flesh, which is circumcision, is to be an everlasting covenant. And my question that I posed several weeks ago was, is circumcision an everlasting covenant we came to the conclusion it absolutely was but at the cross it changed there are other everlasting covenants that indeed are everlasting church but they change at the cross the sabbath was given to us as part of an everlasting covenant we read about this in deuteronomy we looked at that passage but what we discovered is that at the cross it changed do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival a new moon celebration or a sabbath these are a shadow of things to come. The Sabbath was a shadow of things to come. The body is found in Christ. So we find in Christ a fulfillment. When people ask me, Mike, do you keep all Ten Commandments? I say, absolutely. But there is one I will never break, and that is because it is fulfilled in Christ, and that is the Sabbath. And so I enter into this Sabbath rest that Hebrews 4 speaks of. There's an everlasting covenant that was given to the Levitical priesthood. My question is, if this covenant is everlasting with no change, then why do we not see a Levitical priesthood, literally a Levitical priesthood today? It is because at the cross, the priesthood being a shadow was fulfilled in Christ. He is forever a priest 
according to the order of Melchizedek, it says, because he was born of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And so we have an everlasting high priest that intercedes. He's our advocate to the Father. And so the, this covenant was indeed everlasting. Jesus, or, or this priesthood, is everlasting, but it changed at the cross. And my question is, and I think we looked at five or six of these ever or more of these everlasting covenants, and every single one of them indeed is everlasting, but every single one of them changed at the cross. So here's my question. Why is this the everlasting covenant or the everlasting possession of the land? Why does it not change? Why does it not change? I'm going I'm to suggest to you it does change. This covenant does change. And as we look in Hebrews 4, and, and I just want to take a moment here because this is not my, the, the main focus of what I want us to get into, but it builds up to it. So Hebrews 4 tells us that, yes, indeed, this is an everlasting covenant, but at the cross, it necessarily changes. And it's in Hebrews 3 in which the author of Hebrews... The author of Hebrews is talking about those who had been given the promised land. And while they were heading to the promised land, they sinned. And in their rebellion, they refused to truly believe in their God. And many of them fell in the desert because of unbelief. And they did not enter into what the author calls, based on a psalm, the rest. That is God's rest, the promised land. The promised land is, was God's rest to Israel. Now look at verse, chapter 4, verse 1 with me. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest changed, no longer exists, no, since it still stands, let us be careful that some of you that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And then he says in verse 3, Now we who have believed enter, present tense, enter that rest. And so we enter that rest. We enter the promised land. This is our inheritance. In Christ, we receive this inheritance. It was, it was a part of the everlasting covenant given to Abraham... But it changes at the cross. So we, we cannot go back to the Abrahamic covenant and say Israel deserves this land because of the Abrahamic covenant, because of that promise. We can't appeal to this terminology of an everlasting covenant. Now, you may wonder, okay, well, what does the Bible teach on this then? In the debate... Very recently, in the Republican debate, um, I, I'm trying to remember where all of them stood, and, and I'm not remembering all of them, but to my recollection, they all said they were pro-Israel. I may offend some of you right now, but the problem that I have with Donald Trump on this issue is he declares himself to be a negotiator. And though he says he's pro-Israel, he says that he's going to help, help Israel negotiate with the other side. Well, who is the other side, by the way? The Hamas? The terrorists? The Arabs who constantly bomb them? Is this really how he is? Do you negotiate with terrorists? So anyway, my opinion. But I have a problem with this when someone says, I am pro-Israel, 
And yet I want to stand. This is what Barack Obama has done and tried to play this negotiator very unsuccessfully. It's anyway, he, he truly is not pro-Israel. And I have told you that scripture is clear, even in the New Testament, that as believers, we should be pro-Israel. Romans 11. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. But he says that he loves Israel because of the patriarchs. Revelation 12, when the woman, is, woman who represents Israel flees into the wilderness, God protects her and the earth helps. And in that word earth, it is also meant inhabitants of the earth. The inhabitants of the earth protect the woman who is Israel. Who should be better leaders of that than the church? But here, here's where I'm going with that. I do believe, and I believe scripture makes it clear, I truly do, that the land that God promised to Israel should be Israel's. But it is not based on Genesis... It is based on Joshua. It is not based on the Abrahamic covenant of a promise. Otherwise, we should help them, get, they, we should help them secure the land all the way to the Euphrates. And I'm not aware of any Christian Zionist, maybe there are some, but I'm not aware of them who would help in that endeavor. I'm not even, I don't even believe that that's Israel's desire. But what happened in the book of Joshua? It was no longer a promise. God gave the land to Israel. You can read through the book of Joshua, and you will find it in, in several paragraphs devoted to each tribe what their boundaries were. It's kind of like dots on a map, and when you connect those dots, that is the land that's been given to Issachar, Asher, Manasseh, Ephraim, and so on. And, and it's rather clear. It if you were to look in the back of your map, it goes nowhere near the Euphrates. But this is the land that was given to Israel. Now, David, in securing his borders and then followed by Solomon, did extend their territory, though none of the tribes inherited it all the way to the Euphrates. So God's word was fulfilled. But the, the land that was given to Israel is described for us in the book of Joshua. So here is my question then. Even though, and I hope I've made the case strong, that we should not rely on this everlasting covenant, there was a gift that God gave to Israel. Please understand, this has never happened in the history of mankind, that God has ever, ever given land, not just promised it, given land to a nation. Some would say, well, God gave this land to us. Maybe. But he certainly did not give, us, give it to us as he gave the land of Canaan to Israel. Very different. What God gave as a gift to Israel belongs to Israel. Regardless of whether the nations steal it from them or not, it belongs to them. So, if you're wondering where I stand on this issue, and we're going to show a video here in just a moment... I believe that we don't rely on Genesis for this, but the book of Joshua, that God has given it to them as a gift. As a matter of fact, in, Revel in Romans 11.29, in Romans 11.29, it says, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God gave the land and it is irrevocable. 
regardless of whether people point to prophecies of the restoration of the land, when we read through, and we're going to do this in a moment, in the Old Testament prophecies, they don't refer to that, but they refer to something far grander than a piece of land. We're going to show, I want you to see a video here, because, first of all, I want you to realize that the land that God gave to Israel truly belongs to Israel. As a matter of fact, the Arabs have no business in the Western Bank. God gave the Western Bank to Israel. Look in the back of your Bible and you'll see the map. In the book of Joshua, it was given to them. Nations have sought to steal it from them, never ever to form a nation afterwards until in 1948 Israel formed a nation again. It's never been an Arab nation. It's never been a, a British nation. It's never been any other type of nation but an Israeli nation. So if we have a moment, can you show the video? When I did my graduate studies at the Middle East Institute at Columbia University's School of International Affairs, I took many courses on the question of the Middle East conflict. Semester after semester, we studied the Middle East conflict as if it was the most complex conflict in the world, when in fact, it is probably the easiest conflict in the world to explain. It may be the hardest to solve, but it is the easiest to explain. In a nutshell, it's this. One side wants the other side dead. Israel wants to exist as a Jewish state and to live in peace. Israel also recognizes the right of Palestinians to have their own state and to live in peace. The problem, however, is that most Palestinians and many other Muslims and Arabs do not recognize the right of the Jewish state of Israel to exist. This has been true since 1947, when the United Nations voted to divide the land called Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. The Jews accepted the United Nations partition, but no Arab or any other Muslim country accepted it. When British rule ended on May 15, 1948, the armies of all the neighboring Arab states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Egypt, attacked the one-day-old state of Israel in order to destroy it. But to the world's surprise, the little Jewish state survived. Then it happened again. In 1967, the dictator of Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser, announced his plan, in his words, to destroy Israel. He placed Egyptian troops on Israel's border, and armies of surrounding Arab countries were also mobilized to attack. However, Israel preemptively attacked Egypt and Syria. Israel did not attack Jordan and begged Jordan's king not to join the war. But he did. And only because of that did Israel take control of Jordanian land, specifically the West Bank of the Jordan River. Shortly after the war, the Arab states went to Khartoum, Sudan, and announced their famous three no's. No recognition, no peace, and no negotiations. What was Israel supposed to do? Well, one thing Israel did a little more than a decade later in 1978 was to give the entire Sinai Peninsula, an area of land bigger than Israel itself and with oil, back to Egypt because Egypt, under new leadership, signed a peace agreement with Israel. So Israel gave land for the promise of peace with Egypt and it has always been willing to do the same thing with the Palestinians. 
All the Palestinians have ever had to do is recognize Israel as a Jewish state and promise to live in peace with it. But when Israel has proposed trading land for peace, as it did in 2000, when it agreed to give the Palestinians a sovereign state in more than 95% of the West Bank and all of Gaza, the Palestinian leadership rejected the offer and instead responded by sending waves of suicide terrorists into Israel. Meanwhile, Palestinian radio, television, and school curricula remain filled with glorification of terrorists, demonization of Jews, and the daily repeated message that Israel should cease to exist. So it's not hard to explain the Middle East dispute. One side wants the other dead. The motto of Hamas, the Palestinian rulers of Gaza, is we love death as much as the Jews love life. There are 22 Arab states in the world, stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to the Indian Ocean. There is one Jewish state in the world, and it is about the size of New Jersey. In fact, tiny El Salvador is larger than Israel. Finally, think about these two questions. If tomorrow Israel laid down its arms and announced, we will fight no more, what would happen? And if the Arab countries around Israel laid down their arms and announced, we will fight no more, what would happen? In the first case, there would be an immediate destruction of the state of Israel and mass murder of its Jewish population. In the second case, there would be peace the next day. As I said at the outset, it is a simple problem to describe. One side wants the other dead. And if it didn't, there would be peace. Please remember this. There has never been a state in the geographic area known as Palestine that was not Jewish. Israel is the third Jewish state to exist in that area. There was never an Arab state, never a Palestinian state, never a Muslim or any other state. That's the issue. Why can't the one Jewish state the size of El Salvador be allowed to exist? That is the Middle East problem. I'm Dennis Prager. I just thought maybe that might be helpful for us in just educating us very simply in about five and a half minutes concerning the Middle East problem. I think many times politicians make it more complicated than it really is, and the bottom line is that no, it is a simple problem, though it may have a complicated solution. I believe, however, as we move on, and I wanted to be able to share that with you so that we understand the political outplay of this. Now, I want us to look again at the, some of these Old Testament scripture passages because there are two reasons why people would say Israel should have this land. I disagree with the first one. I just simply point to a different reason. The, old, the other is the Old Testament passages promise that this will happen. And I, I want us to look at some of these. And through this, please understand... I believe that God is pro-Israel. Even though today he does not call them his holy people or his chosen people, that is a designation 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says belongs to us as his church. 
I believe, though, that God does love Israel. God has a promise for Israel. He doesn't say about any other nation that all America will be saved. He doesn't say about, uh, about Russia, all Russia will be saved. He doesn't say about Iraq, all Iraq will be saved. He says about Israel, all Israel shall be saved. God has Israel as a special... It, God has a special plan for Israel that includes, at some point, all Israel being saved. Now, how the Israel becoming a nation plays into that, we will see. But what I want us to be careful of is when we start going back into the Old Testament and saying this that happened in 1948, is that spoken of, for example, by Isaiah? So turn with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 speaks of the land, and it says it in this way. Isaiah 49, verses 8, and the first half of verse 9. Now, you are more than welcome to be able to look at the previous verses, the latter verses, but because I have about a half an hour left, I want to kind of cut to the chase. So I'm going to do that with these scripture passages. I truly do not believe I'm taking them out of context. So I'm just going to encourage you, study these passages during the week. But Isaiah 49, verses 8 and 9, it says this, This is what the Lord says, In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. Does it not seem as if God will restore this land to Israel? It goes on and it says, to say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness be free. Can I ask you this question? Before we start delving into this idea of the land, who is you in this passage? Do, do your homework. R read through that passage again <clears throat> and just some very simply answer that question. Who is you? You may have to look at previous verses and such, but do the best you can. Before I move on any further, answer that question. Who is you? <clears throat> now, while you're thinking about that, <clears throat> excuse me, I did tell you that we do not want to fly blind. Meaning, even in airplanes, they have a, a, a um, help me out here, a, a p instrument panel. Instrument, that's the word I was looking for. They have an instrument panel. They can fly at night, they can fly in clouds, and they don't have to crash into mountains because of this instrument panel. Our instrument panel, two things, remember? Number one, how does the New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament? And number two, is there a very plain meaning to the passage? Now, one of the passages, not this one, we're going to find a very plain meaning but this one here, I'm going to appeal to a New Testament author that actually interprets this verse and answers that question, who is you, in this passage. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul tells us who you is. And you may be familiar with the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, especially verse 17, that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. 
Very well-known passage. Many people have memorized powerful passage of Scripture. We're actually going to come back to that a little bit later. But in chapter 6, as he's talking about those becoming new creations, he has been acting as an ambassador to bring them to reconciliation in Christ. He then says in verse 1, as God's fellow workers, we urge you, the Corinthians, Jews and Gentiles, we encourage, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Very simply meaning that we do not want you to neglect God's grace because it is grace that leads to salvation. So we don't want you to neglect it. We don't want you to pass it by because the opportunity, it has the opportunity to rescue you, to redeem you, transform you, to make that which is old past and for you to become a new creation. So he goes on to say, for it is, for it's, I'm sorry, for he says, now remember, he is a, when he quotes scripture like this, he's about to substantiate what he just said. And he says this, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. He is quoting from the very passage that we just read in Isaiah 49. Who is you in this passage? Because it goes on to say, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Who is you? According to Paul, you is Jews and Gentiles that he is urging to come to Christ. To embrace this grace that will liberate them and do what? Bring salvation. When was this passage in Isaiah 49, verse 8, fulfilled? Paul tells us, now is the day of salvation. It was fulfilled at the, at the coming of the Spirit as the gospel is being proclaimed. Paul is saying, right now, guys, right now, Isaiah 49 is being fulfilled. Now is God's day of favor. So we know that you, as Jews and Gentiles, we know that it was fulfilled in the now, right now. It is being fulfilled today. So here's my question. If that's true, then what is this land? Is this land a literal land that is to be restored? Now, it would seem that it is not. Let's move to another passage of scripture that will help us understand this just a little bit more. Before we draw any more conclusions, turn to Amos chapter 9. Amos 9. Go to Daniel, move on to Hosea, Joel, Amos. Last chapter in the book of Amos. And in Amos chapter 9, starting with verse 11, he says, In that day. Now, we've covered this before. Whenever you come across that phrase, in that day, you want to know what he has just talked about. He has just talked about sinful Israel and how God is putting them in a sieve and that all of this, the sinful will fall to the ground and the righteous will be held. Um, I, I'm sorry, just the opposite of that, the... the that which is the pebbles and such are caught in the sieve and the good grain falls to the ground. And so he is sifting the sinful kingdom of Israel. 
We might word it this way. The remnant is what falls to the ground. Those who truly will follow after God. The others will not. So that is the context of what he's speaking of here. Verse 11, let me read it again. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be. What is David's fallen tent? It's not a word that's used very frequently, but David's fallen tent would be his kingdom. I mean, that is the context, isn't it? If you were to look in verse 8, surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. He is going to destroy the sinful kingdom and allow the righteous, the remnant, to fall to the ground from his sieve. So David's fallen tent is this kingdom. It's a righteous kingdom. During David's reign, it was, it was a righteous kingdom. It was the kings, many of the kings that followed him that led Israel astray to worship idols. And Amos is living during a day in which that exact thing is happening again. And truly, it happened over and over and over. And finally, God just said, enough is enough. The northern kingdom especially, worshiping its bales, Judah barely hanging on. And God says, okay, guys, the axe is falling. I'm going to put you in this sieve. But then he, he promises in that day, I will. When I sift Israel, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will restore this sinful kingdom, he says. He says he, he's going to repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build as it used to. Let's continue on, verse 12. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom... And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Let's look at verse 13. In the, day, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will, will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. Pause. Is he talking about a little return then? And if he is, is he then, he says, they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. Are these literal ruined cities? They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. These ruined cities that he speaks of in verse 14 are obviously the fallen tent, the broken places, the ruins that he is promising that he will rebuild. I mean, are there any keys here that can tip us off and help us understand this passage? There is. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Now, I want you to follow me here. We've looked at Isaiah 49. We've realized that that was given, it sounds like it's given to Israel, but Paul makes it clear it's given to those, all of those Jews and Gentiles who will be coming into the church. When? In 1948? No, right now. In his time, 50, 55 AD when he wrote Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, about 55 AD. 
Now we're coming and looking at Amos. And our question is, when will God restore David's fallen tent? When will he bring Israel back and rebuild the ruined cities? And build it, verse 11 says, as it used to be. Now in Acts 15, we have what is commonly called the Jerusalem Council. I'm not going to get into the issues at play here, but this awesome, awesome thing has happened in which... Paul and Barnabas have been sent out from Antioch. We're looking at about 48 and four, or 49 AD for the time frame of this council. And so for about two years or so, they have been traveling through what is present-day Turkey, or at least the southeast portion of this. They've been proclaiming the gospel. There have been miracles. Awesome things have been happening. Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. Not just a few, not just a handful here and there. Every city they go to, people in droves are coming to Jesus Christ, believing that he truly is raised from the dead. People have been healed. People have been set free. The power of the gospel demonstrated. And Paul and Barnabas, they're so excited and they're talking about this. And James kind of brings a conclusion to what they're saying because the issue at hand has to do with the Jewishness of Christianity and what do we do about these Gentiles and James says in verse 13 when they finished that is Paul and Barnabas James stood up brothers listen to me I'm sorry this is immediately following Simon Peter and what he had said and he says Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself that happened in in chapter 10. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. It is written, why does he say that? What is about to follow should prove what? That the Gentiles are coming to Christ. When? In their day. This is what was pre predicted way back when. Well, let's read the passage. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. He's quoting from the very passage that we, we just read in Amos 9. When does James say this will be fulfilled? It is being fulfilled in his day. It is not something that will be fulfilled literally in 1948 or some other time. It is being, it is being fulfilled in his day. David's fallen tent. The, the, the Jews, the remnant, are coming to Christ. And as a result of them coming to Christ, the Gentiles now are coming to Christ. And before you know it, the, the, the descendants of the barren woman from Isaiah 54, they will be extending to the right and to the left, dispossessing nations, Isaiah 54, 3 says. This passage, James says, under the authority of the Spirit, is happening in his day. So let's turn back to Amos 9. When it says David's fallen tent will be restored, that is the kingdom of David, of Israel, being restored, when will that happen? James tell, is telling us it happened by, 19, by 48 and 49 AD. Not 1948, 
but 48 A.D. There was no land that Israel was restored to at that point. Actually, in 15 years, they were led as captives from 70 A.D. into the nations. And Jesus predicted that this would happen even in Matthew 24, Luke 21. He predicted that would happen, that the temple would be destroyed, not one stone laying upon another, and that the Gentiles would tread upon Jerusalem. Isaiah 9, verses 11 and 12 and following, happened in the days of the apostles. It is happening right now. So I want to spend the remainder of our time answering this one question now. I want you to take really good notes if you haven't right now. What are these ruined cities that he's referring to? There were no ruined cities in 48 AD that they restored. What ruined cities would he be referring to? Let me now take you to Isaiah 61. Very, very similar wording. Isaiah 61. Verse 4. Isaiah 61, verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. We could go on. But I want to ask you this question. Who is they? I'm now asking you two questions at once. I, I hope that's not confusing you. I'm asking, who, what are these ruined cities that are being rebuilt? But before we answer that question, in looking at this passage, we, we need to answer the question, who is they? Because they, whoever they are, will do this rebuilding. Who is they? Well, whenever you come across a pronoun, you realize that it obviously has already been introduced to us. So it's only fair to say they. Well, who is they? We're going to have to look at the previous verse. So look at verse 3 with me. If you look just a few lines ahead, follow me. It says, they will be oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Then it says in verse 4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. Who will rebuild the ancient ruins? Those who will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Whoever they is, God is wanting to do something so absolutely awesome in them that they will stand for the world to see as a display of his glory. I mean, that is awesome. Whoever they is, I mean, that would be a really cool position to be in, don't you think? To be able to stand up and, you know, I am a display of the glory of God. Woo. Wow. That, that would be awesome, would it not? So let's then back up, because now by backing up, we find out who they is. If we were to back up all the way to verse 1, the Spirit of Sovereign Lord is upon me, we know immediately who this is referring to. Because Jesus quotes it in Luke 4, and it's him. 
Him, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, the Lord, is the anointed one. And he's going to proclaim good news. And he's going to heal the brokenhearted. And he's going to set the captives free. And he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And it says to comfort all who mourn. Why is Jesus going to be proclaiming the gospel? To comfort those who mourn. To provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Jesus said on that day that this passage was fulfilled. When we now read the word they. It refers to those who apparently have heard the gospel, have been comforted, have been provided for, who now receive a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It is people who by the gospel have been transformed their lives have been changed. It is they who will rebuild the ancient ruins. Can I just tell you this? That these cities, literally these cities that are being referred to in Isaiah, when the Babylonians came, they pillaged and they were pillaged and destroyed by the enemy. That's the backdrop, the historical backdrop to this prophetic word. Those Babylonians stole the treasures. They killed the people. They destroyed its beauty. They killed, excuse me, they stole the treasures. They killed the people. They destroyed its beauty. Let me just say that one more time. They stole the treasures. They killed the people. They destroyed its beauty of all of these ancient cities. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the enemy comes to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. By sin and by Satan, this world has been pillaged. Those who were lost in this world, and I was one of them, my city was destroyed by sin. For some of us, before we came to Christ, our marriage was shipwrecked. Before we came to Christ, we would say that our relationships had broken down. We were filled with bitterness, perhaps, selfish ambition. There was brokenness in it. We were broken vessels. There were hurts in us. For some of us, we refused to forgive our parents. We refused to forgive that boss that so wounded me. We refused to forgive. We decided to harbor grudges. We were captured and addicted to sin. For some of us, we found ourselves in financial ruin. We refused and we rebelled as enemies of God against his biblical principles. But what did 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. 
The new has come. Jesus, in that very same passage of John 10, 10, where it says the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, he says, but I have come, but I have come to do what? To give you life. And to give you life more abundantly. Jesus came to restore the ruined cities that have long been devastated, the ancient ruins. He came to restore those would be our lives. They would be those ruined relationships, most specifically that ruined relationship with God himself. Because of sin and Satan, we were held captured. There would be one word, one word in the New Testament, in my opinion, that would, that would capture what I'm talking about right now. It's the word redemption. Redemption. I want you to just picture yourself before you came to Christ. Where were you? What was your life like? Now, maybe right now, sitting here tonight, you would have to confess, well, I'm still not a part of that. I still haven't chosen to follow Christ. So maybe what we're describing, this is you. Not it's your past. It's where you are at right now. Colossians 1.13. It says, we have been transformed. Or translated from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. In whom is redemption. Now listen to this next phrase. The forgiveness of sins. Redemption means a purchase. A, a, a financial transaction. Jesus says you've been, or Paul says you've been bought with a price. You don't, you, you do not own yourself. God owns you. He purchased you with the very lifeblood of his son. And so by the blood of Jesus, we had been bought. But this passage just told me, kind of gives us a little insight in this concept of redemption. He says, in whom is redemption? The forgiveness of sins. And so I'm going to say this. Redemption speaks of our past and our future. We have been forgiven of our sins. When Jesus bought us at your conversion, what did he do? Your past sins. Everything about your past and all of its shame and, and things you would not, you hope your children never get into, that, then that was a part of your life. As a matter of fact, for some of us, we were, we're even a, a little fearful to include it in our testimony because just, there's just a sense of shame about it. All of that, all of it, the guilt associated with it has been forgiven, cleansed, washed away because we're in Christ and we have been, we've become new creations. But this word redemption, it says, it talks about forgiveness of sins, but redemption has a purpose. You have been bought for a reason. In, in the social media, they use this term that I think is kind of cute. They use it, it's called repurposing. I just thought that was a pretty cool term. Repurposing, you can write that down. But God has purchased us and repurposed us. He has now said, you know what? You're not living for yourself anymore. Guess who you're living for, church? Guess who you are called to live for? You are called to live for Jesus. 
He is the king, the old dominion of Satan. You're not under that rulership anymore. You're under the rulership of a new king, and that is Jesus. And he has redeemed you, which means he's forgiven you of your sin, and he has, cool, repurposed you. That means you have a new purpose in Christ, and it's all about him. So that is the concept of redemption. You see, the ruined, the ancient cities that have been ruined in Christ have been transformed. We do not, how does it say in Isaiah 3, uh, 61? He says, you have received the oil of gladness instead of mourning. A garment of praise. That's what should be on our lips, church. Regardless of the circumstances in your life that maybe even as a Christian, you just feel like throwing the towel and you're wondering, God, how can you allow the devil to beat up on me like this? It is just not fair. And we can cop an attitude. There, there are times, honestly, in which it seems David copped an attitude. God, where are you? Don't you see what the enemy's doing in my life? God is not offended when we appeal to God and say, God, this is how I feel. I, I feel all alone right now. God is not offended by your human emotions. God was not offended in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, his son, said, please take this cup from me. He didn't turn around and say, Jesus, what are you? Have you lost it, son? Don't you remember before you were even born of, the, of, of your mother Mary? We talked about this. Don't, don't run on me now. God was not offended by this. Immediately, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. You see, that was a will. Regardless of his emotions, that was a will fully submitted to the Father's will. That's what God is concerned about. He's concerned about this submission thing. He's concerned about this surrender thing. How then do we rebuild? How then do you? Because that's what the passage says. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. You're going to rebuild the ancient ruins. Now, I'm not excluding God from this picture. Of course not. The only way that we can be transformed is by being in Christ, okay? That is a transformation by the Holy Spirit. But he is asking us to partner in this transformational process with a surrendered heart. That is key here, a surrendered heart. God restores... And I speak to you as a believer in Jesus. God restores your ruined cities to the degree that your heart surrenders to him. I don't know. You might even want to write that down. But God restores your ancient ruins to the degree that you surrender to him. That's what it means to walk in the spirit. And if you go to Galatians 5 where it talks about walking in the spirit, being led by the spirit, uh, keeping in step with the spirit and such, he talks about the fruits of the flesh or, or, or the, the acts of the sinful nature and the fruit of the spirit. This walking in submission to the spirit of God is what brings about this transformed life. 
If there's no surrender, or if there's very little surrender, there's no restoration, or for many Christians, honestly, it's little restoration. Because their heart is still stubborn. Their heart is still, they, they, they experience the emotion, but you see, David worked through that. And if you look at Psalm 13, he talks about, God, where are you? How long are you going to delay in your, your deliverance? You know, I'm about to lose my life here, I'm paraphrasing. But he says, nevertheless, I will rejoice in your salvation. Okay, by happy, I'm, I'm talking about a human emotion. I'm talking about a human emotion. Jesus was distressed to the point of death. But in that distress, his heart was submitted to the Father. That's where David eventually found himself. As he worked through this distress and this intense emotion, he submitted to the Father. Let me tell you, this type of surrender, when we have fully surrendered to him, which is what he's calling us to, to totally rebuild those ancient ruins. Can I just say this? In surrender, the cost is never too high. Is that your view of surrender to Christ? The cost of following Jesus, do you find it too high at times? I invite you then. Fully surrender to him. Because the heart that's fully surrendered says that the cost is never too high. In full and complete surrender, there's a sense of seriousness and even desperation for God. You realize that you cannot do without him. You don't treat him as your Jesus genie. You know, in the movie Aladdin, rub the lamp and get your three wishes. Many people come to Jesus and they just kind of rub the Jesus genie lamp and they want their three, I mean, three uh, answers to prayer. You know, but that's how they treat Jesus. You know, I'm just going to follow you, Jesus. And when you stop giving me my three wishes, you know what? Talk to the hand. I'm not going to follow you. And that is the way many of us treat Jesus. And it is all about, guess who? Me. Jim just nailed it on the head when he said the thing that Jesus and I had in common was we were both living for Moa, for me. And even Christians, we can just be so seduced by the, the, the mediocre lifestyle, the sinful lifestyle of those around us. We start wondering, wow, I mean, they have these plans for making a lot of money and guess what they make a lot of money and they're absorbed in their money but look how they live wow and it looks so attractive it is so seductive but it is completely empty so empty because no fairy tale happily ever ending happily ever after ending gets there without jesus it just doesn't. 
Do you want to see the, the ancient ruins rebuilt in your life? Do you, go to the, do you go to Books A Million, to the top 10 bestsellers and the self-help books? And woo, maybe, this, maybe this has got the answer for me. And there are those people in this world, including people in the church, and they're constantly buying these self-help books. Now, in some of them, you're going to come across a few biblical principles. And guess what? They work. Whether it was written by a non-Christian or a Christian, it's a biblical principle. And guess what, church? Biblical principles work. But they're also filled with a lot of humanism. You just need to love yourself. That's what you need to do. I'm sorry, but loving yourself is not the answer. Church, it is the problem. All right? But, but we're caught up in, you know, I just want to be a better me. Whatever that means. And the, the, the truth is, we are, we're, we're, we, as Christians, we want to grab that Jesus genie lamp. We want to rub it and get our three wishes. And following Jesus has become all about me, not surrender. You see, we can tend to follow Jesus to the point of discomfort or inconvenience, but no more. Is there surrender in that lifestyle? I'm kind of thinking not. But when we expect God to heal us and transform us and take care of our family and renew our finances, I think God is asking us, wow, I would love to do that, but how surrendered are you to me? He rebuilds the ruined cities to the degree that our hearts are ruined before him and surrender. It's not all about me. It's about his pleasure, not mine. His purposes, not mine. And if you want to test this, turn to Isaiah. You can write this down. I'm, I've chosen not to read it because really right now I'm out, of, I'm out of time. Isaiah 58, verses 8 to 12. He speaks of the true fast. And it's all about total surrender to God and obedience to him. But guess what is found in there? What's found in there? is your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called, church, I'm pointing at you, you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. That is your new name. You are no longer a ruined city. You are a, your foundations have been renewed in Christ. You're a new creation. The old has past the new has come embrace it in full surrender i remember when sarah holland now sarah jeffords became part of the church like a long time ago i can't remember 12 years ago 10 years ago 11 and she was broken she was truly broken i'm not going to get into her testimony you can ask her if you want but she was broken and she had she was a ruined city. But we serve a God who's the repairer of foundations. And then when she gave her heart to Jesus, Jesus transformed her. She transformed her right before our eyes. It was like, wow, God, go. And she just said, you know what? I am not going to go back that way anymore. And she just set her face like flint following Jesus. And with every step, Jesus transformed her life. Jesus did the very same thing for her husband. It wasn't her husband at the time. But Mike visited Powerline, and I say Powerline, but really he had an event with Jesus Christ that transformed him, filled with insecurities. He was. 
And God just took him by the scruff of the neck. And just like when you shake out a wrinkled shirt, he just shook him out. And he restored that young man. And he's a leader in our church today. And he's healed him of those insecurities that, he, that, that, would, just, that would control him. His emotions, his actions. Many of you know what Mike was like some eight years ago. God totally changed him. You know, Stephen Smith over here was involved in Wicca. And I remember the first time that he visited our life group years ago. And he said, I want you to preach. He pulled me outside and he said, I want you to pray for me. And I said, really? I said, yeah, because um, I've been using my tarot cards and sprinkling them with water. I said, wait, 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 just a moment. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> well, yeah, 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 I'm involved in Wicca. And, uh, and I said, really? God got a hold of his life, actually did some pretty phenomenal miracles in his life, in his family's life. God healed Mary totally got rid of the bitterness in her life and it was like the very next week she got pregnant and we've been that's another story in itself but God healed her God's healed her family you want to you want to you want to talk to some awesome kids talk to talk to May and Saxon awesome kids because their parents have been transformed their the ancient ruins have been restored and they are determined to raise up a family a city if you will that truly glorifies God and becomes a display of his splendor that is our God that is what he is calling us to do walk a life in total submission and surrender to him it's not my will it is absolutely God your will let that be done please can you stand with me Marla could you come up I, I just want to ask you tonight and if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I am going to challenge you. Make that step tonight and fully surrender to him, please. But church, I want to lay a challenge before you tonight. Are there still some cracked foundations in your life? Are there issues that swallow you up? Is there a place in your heart that is not surrendered to him? Has the, does the devil keep coming in and bringing mayhem into your life? And, and does it feel as if your life has just keeps spinning out of control? Has Satan wreaked havoc in your finances because you failed to yield them to him? How about your relationships? Is there hurt? and bitterness that's still there in your heart. And because you have not fully surrendered that to him, do you just see the enemy devouring your relationships? Tonight, let the restorer of foundations repair your broken heart. This is what, this is the passion of God's heart. Because his passion is to repurpose you, that you would become the display of his splendor. Church, is that not awesome? What a privileged place to be. That as we go about in life, we communicate the testimony of Jesus, the one who has redeemed us, forgiven us of all of our sins, called us into a new direction.
I think maybe some of us were fighting that new direction. We're fighting that transformation. I want to open the altars to you tonight. Maybe we could bring down the lights a little bit, make it a little bit more personal. But if, if you are just, if there's something that you are wanting to surrender to him, if there is something in your heart that you have been crying out, God, please repair this. Please mend this broken heart of mine. Please heal this relationship. God, please heal this marriage. Let God minister to you right now. Let the Spirit of God complete this transformation that He begun when you first gave your heart to Him. Let Him do that for you tonight.